Good morning and uh, welcome to our service this morning and uh, this next in our series on the Psalms. We're doing this series on various Psalms and the, under the heading of No Ordinary Father and today is Jealously Devoted uh, is the subject and it's Psalm 79. So I'm going to read it to you um, but I have to say before I read it, it does carry a health warning with it. O oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the air and flesh for your own people, for the animals of the wild. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbours, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, God our Saviour, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you with, their, with your strong arm. Preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbours seven times the contempt they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. Talking about graphic scenes, I came across this little story the other day about a conversation between a granddad and his grandson. The young lad was doing a school project about the Second World War and wanted to know all the gory details of his father's, grandfather's work during the wartime. So he asked his grandfather the question that intrigues many young people. Did you kill anyone in the war, Grandad? The old man thought for a moment and then said, yes, probably. I was a cook. Not quite the answer the boy had been expecting. The picture drawn so vividly in Psalm 79 is one where the terrible punishment has been handed out by the invading Babylonian army. It's a psalm of Asaph who was probably a Levite involved in the musical worship in the temple, a sort of Stuart Townend of his day without the cap. If you look at Psalm 74 sometimes, you'll find there are some similarities, probably the same author. And if you look at Jeremiah, you'll find there also that he has borrowed some of the images from this psalm. From the events described in the first four verses, we can date the psalm to being written just after Nebuchadnezzar had attacked and ransacked Jerusalem in 587 BC. The strongest and most fit people of the nation have been rounded up and deported to Babylon. And the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, which were written from the exile, describe how things worked out for the Jews in Babylon. But it would seem that our psalmist had escaped that terrible experience. He'd probably fled from the city, maybe into the foothills of Judah. And the psalm describes the shock and horror when he returns. He finds devastation. And this psalm is written in the form of a lament. Now, a lament is usually described as a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. It's sad that this is another of these words which has been slightly devalued in today's society. You could say, for instance, 
Jerry Ponsford and Chris Bolchin lamented the fact that Child and Athletic had lost again. They weren't wailing and crying with anguish, well, I don't think they were, but they were pretty upset. It is a correct use of the word, but actually the original meaning was usually in the context of grief and followed a death. Spirituality writers today encourage us to investigate the whole idea of lament. It's helpful in the grieving process for many people. It's quite the opposite of bottling things up. A lament always carries an element of hope. You might write out a lament and express your feelings on paper or indeed in song, much as Asaph did here in the psalm. For Jewish people, this was an important facet of grief. Hence, Jeremiah writes his book called Lamentations. If you want another example, look back sometime at David's beautiful poem of lament for Saul and Jonathan after their deaths in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But here Asaph mourns and grieves and laments over Jerusalem and the scenes of death and destruction. As I thought about this psalm, it occurred to me that there seemed to be three strands of Asaph's grief. And it reminded me of a piece of rope. We have an old piece of rope which we uh, found in our house when we moved in ten years ago. And as I look in it, at it, I find that it's made up of three strands. And there's a biblical reference in Ecclesiastes 4 that a person attending, standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two stand back to back and can conquer. Three are even better. For a three-braided cord is not easily broken. So let's look at the first strand. And the first strand is the strand of sadness and pain. Sadness and pain. Verses 1 to 4. And generally the first stage of grieving goes, takes us through the whole process of denial. You can almost sense it in the psalm with Asaph. He can't believe that what he was seeing. He can't figure what's happened. He knew the reputation for the Babylonians was of a, a, a greedy, cruel and capricious nation. But now he observes something which he taken him completely by surprise. The temple had been defiled and broken down. Jerusalem left just as a pile of rubble. It was like a huge earthquake had devastated the city. And the temple held a particularly honoured place, as you know, in the religious life and faith of the Jews. It was a place of purity and holiness where God's holy name was revered. Now it had been trampled over by hordes of godless pagan soldiers. In this catastrophe, catastrophic situation Asaph laments about uh, and if you notice in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm he says your land in verse 1 your holy temple verse 2 your servants your godly ones the affront of this devastation is against God first and foremost and Asaph sees the situation but he's almost refusing to believe how can this be Perhaps the worst thing of all was the presence of dead bodies of those that were killed in the siege of the city. The fact that they'd lain for days in the open providing food for the wild animals was too painful for him to contemplate. It's the commentator E.M. Blakelock who says this, The ghastly picture of neglected dead amongst the broken ruins of their homes has haunted history from Jerusalem to Hiroshima. It wrings the heart to think, that man cannot be done with his devilry. In verse 4, Asaph laments the fact that on top of everything, their heathen neighbours just crowed over the fact that Judah had been defeated. The neighbouring nations did nothing to help, but they just split their sides with laughter and mocked mercifully. 
as Asaph sees the terrible destruction. He seems to be in denial, and many people in the aftermath of tragedy and death can go through the same stage of grief. Maybe that's where you are today. You've lost a loved one to the dreaded virus or some other cause. You cannot, because of the restrictions, receive that loving hug that you would have expected. It seems so unreal. Can this really be happening to me, is your cry? Just a few weeks ago, as a church, we said farewell to Debbie Henderson, who was ushered into the presence of her Lord so quickly. For many of her friends, this was quite a shock. Hardly believable. Others are mourning the, the loss of Kath or Maria or Ian's mother or Ginny's brother or Arthur's brother. It's okay to grieve and lament. It may even be helpful to write down your feelings, describe your pain and sadness, wail and cry if that really helps. In doing so, you'll begin the healing process. But remember, it takes time and it cannot be rushed. So if the first strand was sadness and pain, the second strand is the strand of anger. And so we'll put that onto our, our piece of rope, the strand of anger. Asaph erupts into anger both at God, the Babylonians and the surrounding nations. He accuses God of being angry with his people in verse 5 and infers that God's jealousy is what caused the problem in the first place. The problem he wrestles with is that, the, that God could have stopped this from happening because he is almighty Yahweh. But what the psalmist needed to come to terms with was in fact God loved his people so very deeply and was jealous that his people had forgotten his ways and turned to serve, serve idols. When we use the word jealousy, it has negative connotations, doesn't it? If my neighbour has a brand new white Mercedes 200 series cabriolet, which she has, I might be jealous, as I've always wanted to drive a Mercedes. But in that context, it's a wrong emotion, especially if I keep on desiring that Mercedes. It really is nice. However, in God's context, loving jealousy is a rightful emotion, just as in a human marriage relationship. If I see another man making eyes at my wife and trying to win her affections, I would be right to be jealous because we're in a covenant relationship. We made promises to each other when we got married 52 years ago, nearly. God also had committed himself on countless occasions to his people. He'd promised them through their covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses and David, to name the main ones. The Jews were his treasured possession. And scripture in Psalm 17:8 and Proverbs 7:2 and Zechariah 2 verse 8 says this, For thus the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye. That's who God's people are. The Good News Version says, anyone who strikes you strikes what is most precious to me. And our title today is Jealously Devoted. And God over the years had tried to convince his people that when they followed foreign idols and tried to be like the other nations, he was jealous because they actually belonged to him. He'd redeemed them. He'd brought them out of Egypt. Remember how God had given promises to Abraham, how he led him from pagan worship in his homeland to a promised land. He'd made an insignificant family into a great nation. No wonder God was grieved when they turned their backs on him and went their own sinful, selfish way. 
So while Asaf tries his best to get his head round this present dire circumstance and rails against God, you begin to see that he gains perspective, some sort of perspective. In verse 8, he confesses that actually the fault doesn't lie with God, but rather with the sinfulness of his people. He says this, Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we're in desperate need. He cries out to God to remember mercy. What's the description of mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. The sins of previous generations, of God's people, cried out against them. So Asaph asked God to show his undeserved favour. As we move through grief, there will inevitably be anger. I watched an interview the other week with a lady on TV who had lost her mother, an old mother, to coronavirus. And in her grief, she was quite angry with the care home, with the government, and perhaps with herself even. Her perspectives were askew, but she needed to lament. She needed to let it out. Folks, it's okay to be angry. God understands, and God can take it. The important thing is not to remain there because there is hope further along the pathway. Again, I want to remind you that the grief process shouldn't be hurried. It takes time. So Asaph not only acknowledges the unfaithfulness of the people, he calls on God to forgive them in verse 9. Deliver us, forgive our sins. Notice that Asaph had got it right. It wasn't their sin. It was his sin as well. So he uses the personal pronoun our. It's our sin. Is now giving God space to work and begin to face the real issues. How do we handle the times when we have forgotten God and followed our own sinful pathways? Sometimes God has to use a dire situation to waken us up too. Previously, we were just happy to meander our way through life with our own sinful behaviour, prisoners to it, drifting from God. Then a crisis arrives. Perhaps a, a job loss, an accident, a family breakdown, a death in the family or a friend. Then we stop and then we reevaluate. For at that moment, God is able to break through. It doesn't have to be like this. But how often God, who has not caused the crisis, allows it to be a wake-up call? Maybe that's what coronavirus is all about. A wake-up call. To think afresh about our environment and the way that we conduct our lives. We've all been forced to reconsider our priorities. Can we ever go back to the way things were? C.S. Lewis's probably most famous quote bears repeating here. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What is God speaking to you and me about this morning? You don't have to wait for a crisis to stop you in your tracks. Perhaps there's some sinful behaviour which needs confessing. I love J.B. Phillips's version of 1 John 1 9. If we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable and straightforward. He forgives our sins and makes us thoroughly clean from all that is evil. Would you, like Asaph this morning, acknowledge your sinful behaviour and receive God's forgiveness? So, the strand of sadness and pain, the strand of anger, and now the strand of acceptance or dependence. I realise that in the classic five or seven stages of grief, 
that I've moved past bargaining and depression into the final stage of acceptance. But as you see, most of those elements, other elements, are there within the psalm. As Asaph pours out his lament. He turns in verse 10 to the thorny subject of the other nations that rejoiced in Judah's downfall. Asaph wants Judah uh, to be, uh, to be uh, recompensed. He wants God to deal with them. He wants that di the disgraceful behavior of the other nations to be taken out upon them. In verse 12, it may be a problem for some of us. Pay into, back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt they have held at you, Lord. It sort of grates, doesn't it, with our liberal culture of the 21st century. But we have to remember that the context of the Old Testament is a context very different than our own. And it, sometimes it will grate. And Asaph rants on about the other nations who stood by and allowed this tragedy to take place. And Blakelock again helpfully says this, No one has license to condemn who has not known the bitterness of the situation which wrongs and such and wrings from a person the cry of vindication from the heart. These are the words of a soul almost maddened by overwhelming misery. We've no right to condemn if we've not been through that situation that Asaph found himself in. And of course many people in our world have been through that situation, haven't they? Think of the Cambodians under the tyrant Pol Pot, or the Jews in Europe under Hitler. Asaph seems to find some perspective when he realises that God had to discipline his chosen people because of their habitual turning to idols and their unjust sinful behaviour. See, God loved his people so deeply, so unconditionally, was so committed to them that he couldn't allow them to plunge headlong into disaster. He was frustrated by their spiritual adultery. Years before, God had allowed his servant Hosea to go through and experience something of this pain, the pain and the heartache that he was experiencing as his people deserted their first love. The captivity was discipline for the people of God, a 70-year-old lesson which was necessary in order for the people to be restored to a right relationship with him. I guess for many of us that are parents, and we've had to discipline our children for their own good over the years. It was painful but necessary for their eventual growth and development. Maybe that would have been a good question to have asked James this morning. Um, discipline, lovingly applied, will not harm, but will help them to consider making better choices in the future. I'm not talking about physical corporal punishment here, but just punishment which is discipline, which is administered correctly. The writer to the Hebrews quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, and says this in the message version, My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, and don't be crushed by it either. It's the child that he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God was so jealously devoted to his children that he couldn't allow them to just go their own way. The defeat by Babylon and the ensuing exile was a wake-up call for God's people, but for God also. This was a painful experience, and I believe that he wept too. And it, it just draws me back afresh to the cross. And there was that darkness, wasn't there, as Jesus hung on the cross, as Jesus took the punishment of our, our punishment. Our sins were laid upon him, and it was darkness. And God turned his face away from his own son. He couldn't look at him. God loved us so much. He put his son through that process, allowed Jesus to go through that terrible situation of the cross in order to bring us to freedom and redemption 
In verse 11, he mentions, Asaph does, that having been taken to captivity, he commends these people into the loving care of God. May the groans of the prisoners come before you with, their, with your strong arm. Preserve those condemned to die. The ones that were now in Babylon, trying to make a new life away from Jerusalem. And Asaph knows that when far away in Babylon, God still cared and was still merciful towards his children. Maybe for you too, there is pain from your past when you've been abused or hurt just in order to bolster somebody's ego. No doubt this present coronavirus uh, will, and lockdown has probably proved very painful for a whole name, range of people around the world in various homes. But the message of Psalm 79 comes clearly this morning. God is not distant and uncaring. And that the difficult moments, in those moments, he is present. He's jealously devoted to us. And as you're able to, tell him your pain. Cry it out. Lament the situation. For he promises to listen. I love Psalm 56, verse 8, because it says this. You keep track of my sorrows. You've collected all my tears into a bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Isn't that amazing? God knows all about our situation. He's a tender-hearted father, a God who feels with us and weeps with us. Remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. We'll never fully understand the ways that God works in order to guard and keep us. But we can learn from Psalm 79 that even when things are at their worst, God is not disengaged. He is present. He loves them so deeply. He weeps with us too in our sorrows. So Asaph in verse 13 concludes his lament with praise. Praise that will echo down the generations and bring honour to God's name once more. Then we your people, the sheep of your pasture. That's an incredible phrase, isn't it? The sheep of your pasture. Loved and cared for sheep that God cares for. We praise you. We'll praise you forever, from generation to generation, and we'll proclaim your praise. There is always hope for his deeply loved people. On this Pentecost Sunday, perhaps you sense the presence of God's Spirit prompting you to give yourself, and along with those things that have held you back. Will you give them over to God, who jealously is devoted to you? Will you afresh submit to him? I pray you will do so.